Hello, everybody. This is Pat DeCerbo, and we have Nick Masucci here today. Nick is the former CEO of Lewis Berger Group, one of the largest civil engineering firms in America and globally for almost 13 years. And he managed the firm through some of the most precarious periods of its existence. Uh, Nick is, was born in Brooklyn, New York, and grew up in Bergen County, New Jersey, in the town of Dumont. And he is married to Diane. And uh, Nick has two children and two older sisters. And uh, Nick is a graduate of Rutgers University, where he got a Bachelor of Science in City and Regional Planning and in Regional Economics. Welcome, Nick. Welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, what do you remember from Brooklyn, if anything? What do I remember from Brooklyn? I remember the uh, candy store on the corner. Uh, and... Um, And I remember the house we lived in had a long staircase. After that, it tends to get pretty fuzzy. Mm. How old were you when you moved? I was, uh, oh, I guess uh, three or four, four, probably. What were your mom and dad like? Well, my, my mother, uh, given the, the style of the time, was a homemaker. Um, and... Um, my father was uh, an accountant who worked in Manhattan. What was your first job out of school? Well, my first job out of graduate school was working for uh, Lewis Berger. Okay. Uh, I, uh, I was hired. Uh, they had a brand new department uh, division there at Berger uh, called uh, Environmental Division. Um, and I, I was... I was hired uh, in 1975, uh, following in the footsteps of a a, a a Rutgers graduate who was hired the year before. Who was that? Uh, Peter Ciatoli. Oh, okay. I was thinking it might have been Jim Bach, who I think you told me introduced you to Diane at some point. Yes, he did. Actually, he and I were... Um, uh, were at Rutgers at the same time, and he, we graduated at the same time, and he went to, um, I'm trying to think where he went to. I, actually, I don't remember what his first job was, but later he wound up at the Middle, Middlesex County Planning Board. Okay. And then after that, he went to work for Berger with me. Mm -hmm. What was it like in the early days there? In the early days, uh, <laughs> well, I don't want to say it was the Wild West, but um, it was pri primarily at the time uh, uh, full-on engineering design in the United States, um, uh, primarily in the transportation field. Berger had sold itself uh, back in the late 60s, um, and in 1973, Dr. Berger uh, bought the company back from the people he had sold it to. But he only bought a, per, a portion of the company back. He only bought 
two U.S. offices plus all of the international work. And uh, so things um, were not very structured at the time. Like from a revenue standpoint, how big of a company would that have been at that time? What he bought back? Well, in the, the dollars of the day, I'd say it probably didn't exceed $25 million. Mm -hmm. With predominantly most of the business being overseas. Because mm. I remember we used to say that uh, uh, the U.S. operation was 5% of the company at the time. Wow. Was that common at that time, or was Berger, Berger kind of considered a leader in the... On the international side? Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, it, it, it was very uncommon. Most of the American firms by the 70s had, had really withdrawn from working overseas um, because it had become... Um, Un, unprofitable, really. If you if you had a design operation, um, to try and have it do work overseas, uh, Berger. Uh, so Berger was one of the few American firms that were still in the international business, hmm. and it it operated differently than um, uh, than the other American ones had done uh, prior to this point. How so? Well, you know, on the design side, you'd like to have a design team that's worked together before. And um, so things operate smoothly and, and you can really uh, assure your quality. Uh, Berger, uh, given the nature of the type of work we were doing for, for clients, you know, you're really working in developing countries. Uh, you're not working in Europe. Uh, yeah. You know, you're, you're um, so uh, Doc Berger had a philosophy of setting up shop uh, in the country we were working and producing, um, sending enough engineers uh, to oversee uh, to oversee in the work and hiring as many local engineers as he can. He had the philosophy that he part of his mission is not only to complete the project, but to train others. Uh, to do it, do it in the future, hmm. and that was a very, uh, very effective at the time, and um, you know, was a, really was a foundation of his success. Hmm. And as a function of that, we wound up opening companies in some countries that were perhaps the the first engineering company within that country. Hmm. I know that was true of Nigeria and. Uh, a couple of West African countries, um, other West African countries, that was true. Hmm. That's fascinating. It's almost like a form of diplomacy. Well, it's funny you say that because um, Doc Berger uh, always used to believe we were an instrument of U.S. foreign policy. I love it. In fact, the first podcast that I did um, was this guy named Dan Rundy. He's the head of a think tank in Washington, D.C., and he talks about what he calls soft power, which has more to do with the government, but a lot to do with training the local people to carry on after we leave. 
that's that the term soft power is exactly what I was going to say next. Having met uh, over the years uh, theorists from different kinds of uh, think tanks or even from the U.S. government, uh, Berger was part of American soft power. So when you started in the in the seventies, what was your job like? What were you well, I was working on the U, the U.S. side, this very small U.S. side of the company, uh, and at that day we were we were into this newfangled thing that the government had recently um, uh, required called environmental impact statements. You know, I sat uh, in an area that we, we always had a lot of people coming in and out of the office. And I, I sat with um, people that were working on some international projects for a while, and then they would go off. And and I got to be pretty friendly with them. And uh, a couple of times uh, I was asked if I would like to work with, with them on a project because they needed a certain expertise. And, um, and when I was uh, available, I wound up being tasked to go on overseas assignments. And that was the beginning of my introduction to the uh, to the overseas part of the company. Interesting. What do you remember about your first projects abroad? Uh, <laughs> well, my first project where I actually traveled overseas was to Yemen. And what I remember most about that is landing in the dark, getting through customs um, and customs is the same in every country in the world. They're not the friendliest people in the world. And uh, getting through that, getting in a car, and then having to go with through a through a, a military checkpoint with a guy putting an AK-47 in my face uh, in the car traveling to where we were going to stay. Hmm. It certainly uh, brought home the idea that I, I was not back in New Jersey. Wow. Not in North Jersey anyway. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened then? You met, went to the hotel and... Yes, we, uh, we, uh, we went to the hotel and uh, next day we went off to see the client. What we were tasked with doing on that particular assignment was um, uh, the, comp the company had a contract with the United Nations Development Program to develop... Uh, master plans for um, the five largest cities in Yemen. And two of them had been completed and then three still were yet to be done. And um, so two, no, three had been completed and two needed to be done. And we went and met the client, uh, told them our basic plan. And we were given, you know, the blessing to go ahead. And uh, we organized uh, going out to the first city to do our uh, data collection for that. How long were you there? About six weeks. We uh, traveled back and forth uh, uh, originally from the capital city in Sana'a to the first city, which was called Damar, um, which you could go back and forth in a day um, and collected a lot of information in Damar. I met my first camel face to face. Um, tried to eat my backpack. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I was counting traffic at the time. Um, met some Yemenis on the, who were sh um, shepherds. Uh, 
we exchanged some uh, water and food and uh, and then we um, finished in Damar and then went all the way down to Ties, which is further south um, and uh, worked at a, worked in Ties for a few days. So at the end of that trip, was there a plan to go back or was that? Yeah, I did go back. Uh, we prepared, went back, prepared our analyses and, and reports. And, um, and then I went back um, with one of the principals of the company at the time. And, uh, and the UN had hired a, uh, a, a British expert to uh, sort of check the work we had done. And we went back and met with him and... Um, and then we did a you know presentations to the a committee in the in the government and uh, everything had been was accepted and it was a successful project. And at that point, were you um, were you hooked on the international? Well, I really liked the idea of going for what I considered a good amount of time. You know, anywhere for a month to two months. Mm-hmm. Um, the company liked to send people over for six months to two years because you, you know, you get the person out there and, and they're out there and you don't have to worry about flying them back and forth and paying the expenses. So I like the idea of staying close, working in the United States, but staying close. And when there was an interesting assignment, uh, you know, telling my U S boss that I had some time and, telling the international guys that, hey, I'm available if you got anything. So uh, so I had my cake and ate it too. Very much so. When did you uh, start to get promoted internally? How early in your career? After about uh, four years, I was promoted to uh, a senior level rank, senior you know, professional rank. My career sort of took a little detour in that um, the company was in, uh, in, invited to produce a, a proposal for a, a large um, a military project, which was the deployment of what was then called the MX missile mm-hmm. uh, uh, out in uh, Wyoming. Well, there were many basing strategies. The last one where they actually went was in Wyoming. And, um, uh, and I was, uh, I helped write that proposal, uh, which was a fascinating experience for me. And um, the company actually won this job in joint venture with another American firm uh, uh, called URS, which is, uh, doesn't exist anymore. Um, And um, I was out back and forth to uh, Wyoming and California, where the headquarters of the Air Force Ballistic Missile Office was, uh, for the next uh, four years. And and, and it was, I think, partly as a result of that, my work on the proposal, and I ran a section of that project that when I was back full time in... in, uh, in New Jersey at the headquarters, I was promoted to head um, uh, the, uh, the in, what what was then the again the environmental division. It, it had a title. It had a what we, our title structure was after that 
senior principal and then if you're going to be more on the if you're going to run an operation it, the next first rung of that was director and i was a director of the operation which had shrunk in my absence to only eight people but that was kind of back in those days that was sort of the beginning of the environmental enforcement very program, much so right very much so so then what happened well it is now my job for the eight people to uh go out and win work and uh, and supervise the work make sure the quality was right make sure we came in on budget and so we made some money and um so I I had to teach myself the the business of the business. Mm. You know, I think our our field is a very unique field in that nobody really comes into the field trained in the business aspects. Mm. You come in as a professional of some type whether it's like a hard engineering professional or a more soft professional and um and someplace along the line, you start you start learning how the business works. It's so true. I feel like they should teach some of it <laughs> in in all professional schools. Oh, believe me, I've had this uh, discussion. I was teaching for a while at Rutgers after I retired, mm -hmm. and and I was trying to. Well, both I was I was on the board at NJIT for a while. And I argued that their engineering program needed to have a business aspect to it, because if 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 their engineering students could go go into their early jobs with some idea of how the business worked, they would be much more valuable to whatever company they worked for than if they were just just understood the technical work. It wasn't a popular view because everybody said, "Well, if you're an engineer, you should." worry about engineering things, not business. Well, okay, but that's great until somebody has to, has to have work to do. Mm -hmm. When I was a trustee at Union College, the, uh, there was a committee and I was asked to interview CEOs from various disciplines, uh, some engineers, some in banking, some insurance, and almost to a person, to a CEO, um, giving advice to a trustee at a liberal arts college, they said, send me kids that can read a financial statement. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I appreciate the fact that they're an engineer, but I don't want to teach them the basics of business. And well, what I used to wind up doing and now my small operation, which eventually grew, mm. uh, I would uh, regularly hold meetings for the key people to this is the balance sheet. This is an income statement. Mm. This is what cash flow means. Now, in all honesty, I, I only learned it two weeks before myself. Mm -hmm. So I, I had to teach all these things mm -hmm. because nobody knew. So I'm assuming as you focused on the environmental division, it became a, a big business unit. It became eventually... Um, Let's see. This is in the in the mid. And when I started, it was in the mid 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 to late eighties, and by the mid nineties, it uh, was the um, largest op operation in Berger and the most profitable. What were the revenues overall at Berger then? Um, <clears throat> someplace between fifty and seventy-five million. 
in the environmental division? We were probably, um, well, we got up to about 35. And uh, how long were you presiding over the environmental division before you ended up getting into senior management? Well, I, I, I got promoted from director to vice president. And then um, Berger had uh, a higher, highest level of management, uh, operational management, was called a group vice president. And um, by 1990 or 91, I was made a group vice president. And I was also in, uh, invited to become a partner in the firm. You know, although it's a corporation, Berger was managed in, and its culture was very much of an old style partnership, mm -hmm. as were many firms, uh, engineering firms. Mm -hmm. And simultaneously, the international division is maintaining or growing or shrinking. No, the uh, one of the there were two basic international operations: uh, Europe and Africa, and uh, Europe, Africa, and then Asia and South America. <clears throat> and Europe and Africa, Africa primarily shrunk uh, a lot. One of the things that began happening is the. The funders of development work uh, shifted a lot of their money um, out of Africa, particularly after the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm. Uh, countries like the U.S. or Britain or others sent a lot of their international assistance dollars to Russia to help it recover from its Soviet days. Mm -hmm. And the Africans really got sort of left by the wayside. Mm. Now, on the other hand, the Asian business, you know, really took off. So uh, it was really the environmental, which really we joined the, uh, by 91 or two, we joined the U.S. engineering operation and the U.S. environmental operation into one, and it became the U.S. operation. Um, it was the U.S. operation and the Asian operations which really then dominated the company. And at, at that point, did you uh, have a focus one way or the other on the international component, trying to trying to stabilize it or grow it? No, at that time I was still I was you know very much building the U.S. business. Okay. Um, and then um, <clears throat> I got tasked in. I don't know, 95 or something with uh, examining how design build was beginning to start up in the U.S. It was very common overseas, but in the U.S. design build was really not a major form of project delivery. <clears throat> I got tasked with uh, by the then president of the company to see how we, you know, examine that and see what we could do to be more active if that started to grow in the U.S. And in the process of that, I came back and I said, you know, yes, it's likely to grow in the U.S., um, but there'll be a lot, a lot of competition. Mm -hmm. But what I noticed was there was no, very little, if any, competition in managing the, the maintenance of, this was mostly transportation focused, of transportation facilities that <clears throat> um, 
And I could see that the trends in funding, we were building less and less new facilities and the money was shifting to more and more maintenance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, you know, there might be an opportunity in what I call maintenance management um, that we might want to pursue. And I, you know, I was told, oh, well, go ahead. Berger had a very, if you had an idea, you were allowed to pursue it basically. Mm. And if And if it worked, you know, fine, keep writing that idea. But uh, so that's what I did. And coming out of that, to make a long story short, was we wound up forming a company uh, called VMS Incorporated. Um, and it was a basically a joint venture company between Berger and uh, Sverdrup, which uh, was a company based out of St. Louis, which later got purchased by uh, Jacobs. But but in the beginning, it was is Berger and Sverdrup. And um, we did what's very unusual in our business. Um, we created sole source ideas and went around and sold it. Now, then it would be competed, but we won. Mm. So we won our first major contract in Virginia where we became uh, responsible for um, uh, well, a little over 100 miles of interstate highway in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And it was the first contract of its kind in the United States. Now, this was being done in, in Britain and um, we were doing it a little differently than than it had been done in Britain, but uh, but we got sole source contract. I mean, lump sum fixed price contracts uh, for five years with a five year additional option to maintain um, everything about a highway, whether it's the pavement, the the crossing bridges, uh, drainage, everything. And it became one of the, uh, well, it was definitely at that time the largest uh, project Berger had had ever done. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, combined, uh, my, um, my numbers might be off, but it was a $350, $400 million job for Berger. Wow. Um, and it became uh, extraordinarily profitable. And we formed a separate company around it. And uh, I was dispatched from the environmental operation or U.S. operation to uh, run this company. I moved down to Richmond, Virginia. And from Richmond, we won contracts in Florida, Texas, Oklahoma, Alaska, and a couple other places. We built, we built the company to well over $100 million a year. What year roughly was that? Uh, 96 is, I think, when I moved to Virginia. Okay. How'd you like living in Richmond? Well, you know, uh, Virginia is a nice place. Uh, I liked it quite a bit. Um, you're two hours from everything. Two hours from Washington, D.C., two hours from the beach, two hours from the mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming from New Jersey, there was relatively little traffic. I mean, everybody who was from Richmond thought there was horrible traffic, but... Mm-hmm. Basically, you can get any place in the Virginia area, in the Richmond area, in twenty minutes. I really liked it. Um, my wife was not super enthusiastic because it was hot, mm-hmm. very hot. And um, 
She, I liked hot weather. Mm -hmm. uh, she did not like hot weather. <laughs> My kids loved Virginia, mm -hmm. Richmond. Uh, she was less enthusiastic. Mm. How long were you there? Uh, we lived there for six years mm -hmm. um, because uh, <clears throat> like in year five or so, I was asked to come back to Berger directly and take over as CEO of the company. So, Treno, do I want to stay in Virginia and keep building VMS, or do I want to go back and run all of Berger? And I thought all of Berger might be more interesting. Mm -hmm. So, I did. So, you were a senior manager at that time. Um, did it was it a surprise to you at all that you were named CEO at that time? Were we expecting it? I thought the you know myself and one or two other people were likely successors. Mm -hmm. Um, so it wasn't a complete surprise. Okay. I mean, what I had going for me is I had grown one an operation from you know almost nothing to fairly large. Mm -hmm. Um, and um. And I had developed new markets and successfully penetrated those new markets and hired really good people. And uh, so that was my claim to fame. And, you know, even though Berger was growing, um, my efforts made, made it grow a lot faster. And the company, I'd say by um, When I took over, we were just under 200 million in revenue, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe a touch more. It sounds to me like every business you got involved in grew. Uh, pretty much, you know, I, 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 I did okay. I had a <clears throat> couple that didn't work out so well, but, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but um, pretty much, I mean, Back in the late 90s, when I was still at VMS, I was asked to write a sort of a strategic plan um, for Berger overall. And I basically, part of that plan was that we would eventually achieve 500 million in, uh, in revenues. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we exceeded it. Mm -hmm. In fact, we eventually got to 1.2 billion. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, and Berger stepped up working with my the former president who remained chairman of the company mm -hmm. and I was the CEO we stepped up our acquisitions uh, and um, we had a fair amount of business coming from the the firms that we had purchased mm -hmm. and we had a very unique uh, style of purchase mm -hmm. different from again most of our competitors how so we rarely ever bought 100% of a company because mm -hmm. our theory was, you know, and this is a cliche in the engineering world, you know, your assets are all go out the door every night and, and their culture becomes relatively uh, unique to them. And if you were going to purchase them and get the best out of them, they had to have a stake in everything. So we would buy eh, maybe up to 60% of a company if we could mm -hmm. and leave 40% with the, uh, might not be the management that was there when we purchased because they may have retired, 
but with the local management and uh, which, you know, that gave them substantial incentive to make this thing uh, positive. And we didn't really impose on them, um, you know, our, our own styles and things. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that, I don't know, we had about seven or eight firms we had purchased that way, and uh, they were very, very successful. Mm-hmm. You know, we tried to buy firms that were more specialized than we were. So, for example, we bought a company in Seattle who at that time were called was called ABAM Engineers, and they were uh, precast concrete, concrete uh, uh, specialists. And uh, they did uh, very unique structures. Um, and their older people, their original people were retiring. And we bought the company. And boy, they did, they did fantastic for the next several years. We bought a company in Canada in the same way that were geotech engineers, especially in the mining industry. And uh, they were struggling when we bought them. and. But they were so good that if our business acumen could help turn them around, they were going to be fantastic. And partly uh, uh, buoyed, buoyed by the uh, the commodity cycle, <laughs> those guys were, for, were were earning thirty-five and forty percent EBITDA uh, working for mining companies. Wow! And they just needed a little help. Uh, with the business side, it sounds like. Well, we, we created what we call a, 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 a management technique tool, which we called <clears throat> operating committees. <clears throat> Usually myself and um, my predecessor, the chairman, <clears throat> we would visit each company four times a year, mostly. Sometimes it was a little less, but <clears throat> quarterly, basically. And we would meet with the the company management, the key operating managers of that company. So there would be the president of the company, his key deputies, and his financial person. Mm-hmm. And it would be the chairman and myself. And the chairman was a whiz financially. I wasn't bad, but he was better. And I was better on the sort of strategic operational side. And so between the two of us, they would present what's going on and we might make a suggestion here, a suggestion there. But the biggest thing we did was introduce the idea of accountability. You are going to have to sit in front of your peers and us and tell us how you achieved the objective you said you would achieve or how, why you didn't. And it's a great motivator. Mm-hmm. If you're accountable, you tend up, you wind up producing. Mm-hmm. And they did. Who was the chairman at that time? Derish Wolf. Okay. And Dr. Berger had retired? <laughs> Dr. Berger uh, passed away in, um, I don't have the re- the year correct, 97, 98. Mm-hmm. Of course, in the tradition of our industry, he worked to the day he died. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the international division started to grow again, I would think. <laughs> It did because you know in the '90s under um, in during the Clinton administration, mm-hmm. the the U.S. really stepped back from bilateral bilateral sorry um, 
bilateral uh, development aid and switched the focus of its aid from uh, infrastructure to education and health. I mean, all that's good, but from the point of view of an engineering operation, it, the work either, the, the infrastructure work now only came through the big development banks like the World Bank or Asian Development Bank or those kinds of agencies. The US, US Agency for International Development was not a big funder of development work. <clears throat> However, 9-11 uh, changed all that. All of a sudden, the US jumped with both feet back into the world. Um, and, our, and at the same time, the European Union, European Union really got itself organized internally and became big funders of development work particularly in Africa. Mm. So the African operation, which had shrunk greatly, um, all of a sudden now had a new source uh, of clients. And, and so their operations grew uh, at a very fast clip. And uh, with the uh, Afghanistan work, which Berger won the first Afghanistan reconstruction contract, that come out of the United States. Um, we we went up against five firms were invited. I mean, all the biggest U.S. firms, Bechtel, Floor, uh, and us, who was considerably smaller, but we won. And were you at that time? Were you going over to Afghanistan yourself? Yeah, I did go over to Afghanistan. Yes, several times. Well, in the beginning you could still see all the remnants of the Soviet Afghanistan war, you know, downed helicopters and uh, in the middle of the city, uh, blown up buildings um, all over. Um, but as time went on, uh, the country became a little more normalized and the Taliban at that time was not a major threat or as big a threat as it became. Um, people are very nice, very friendly. The food was very good. You know, there were worse places to be in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's a fascinating place. I mean, you know, keep in mind that this is, uh, these, these, these cities were part of the Silk Road from China mm -hmm. to the West. Alexander the Great marched right through Kabul and Kandahar and mm -hmm. crossed the passes into India. I mean... You know, you were in the middle of history. Mm -hmm. Fascinating place. Now, think to, you know, whether we should have stayed as long as we stayed, you could argue that question. If our objective was, you know, we somehow it, the objective more from getting some base of infrastructure fixed in the country to you know, nation, what they call, started calling nation building. And mm. I remember uh, I wrote a, an email to my wife to tell her I had arrived successfully. And, and I made a comment that I said, anybody who thinks that this place is going to become a modern democracy in our lifetime, this is crazy. Mm. I mean, this, we're, we're back in the 14th century here. 
Did you read the Afghan campaign? I don't know that one specifically. Uh, it's a book by Stephen Pressfield about the quest of Alexander the Great. And oh, okay. My yeah. conclusion after having read the book was not much has changed. Not, well, I can tell you that not much has changed. I mean, I read about the British army being destroyed twice in Afghanistan, and, and you could see why. I mean, these mountains are enormous. Mm -hmm. And you're there and maintaining your logistics, it, it is really hard. And when the winter comes, the weather is hor horrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, Berger, in order to operate, one of our first assignments was the, the ring road that, that goes around the country. And uh, President Bush had promised um, the president of, of Af Afghanistan at the time, Har uh, Harman Karzai, Hamid Karzai, and that that road would be finished uh, by, the, by the end of the year, which was seven months away. Hmm. You ever do a road in seven months? Mm -hmm. uh, and 300 miles long? Mm -hmm. I mean, that took quite a bit of not only engineering, but logistical planning, plus security. I mean, we had to form our own security. At, at one time, Berger had the third largest armed force in Afghanistan after the American army, the British army, and the U.S. security, uh, the Louis Berger security group. Did you get the road done in seven months? Yes. That's incredible. Without the uh, surface topping, to be to be honest, mm -hmm. but it was you could travel it and you could travel it at high speed. And in the spring, we put the, the final pavement layers on. Mm -hmm. So at some point, um, the road got rocky abroad. For well, you know, uh, the U.S. started making lots of mistakes in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, Taliban was resurgent. It became. Um, a very difficult place to work. I mean, how many private sector contracts that do you know to, know of that says build build a dam, a school, a highway, whatever, in the middle of a war? Mm -hmm. so, you know, it became rather difficult. We we started losing a lot of people, mm -hmm. mostly our security guards, but some of our engineers as well. Mm -hmm. I I know one of the times I was over, I. I went, we had an Indian engineer uh, from India uh, who was working with us. And um, he was in a, in a, a car that had been uh, destroyed by an IED. And uh, he was killed. And, um, and I, I went and met his wife in uh, Mumbai uh, and talked to his wife and his, uh, her brother-in-law, the guy's brother met his children. It was a very difficult thing to do. Mm. Uh, I gave a speech in uh, Kabul about um, a guy had killed, been killed on the road uh, who was a security guard. Um, and I remember his father, uh, through a translator, telling me that his son loved this job because it was the only thing he ever did that did not involve tearing things down. Mm. Yeah, that stays with me, has stayed with me forever. One guy, uh, 
helped save a couple of our people as a security guard and and it's a very bright guy and we wound up putting him through engineering school in the united states mm. so at that point were you spending large amounts of time in afghanistan or? well i was spending some time uh you know most of you know, it's one part of the company, but it's mm -hmm. becoming a very big company. Mm -hmm. And following our operating committee concept, I was, now we had, at that time, we had, uh, uh, my numbers were a little off. It's either eight or nine operating companies. You know, we had the original Louis Berger, which we, that's an operating company. And then we had our, our French company, which is what oversaw Africa for us. And um, and then we had other companies in different places, the Canadian company, the Seattle company. Uh, we had a company in New York City, the, uh, the old Almond and Whitney Bridge Company. Um, we had other, so and so, you know, when you, you add it up and you're going to these operating committee meetings four times a year, um, that's a lot of travel. Mm -hmm. So you're fitting other things into that that schedule. Mm hmm. I mean, it was successful because we, we really grew. And then um, we eventually sold out our position in the maintenance management company um, to an Australian firm. Highest economic return on any investment Berger ever made. That's great. So at what point did you learn that the U.S. government was displeased with, um, with the Berger group? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's one thing to go from darling on monday to bum on tuesday mm. it's uh it's a little disconcerting so so we grew really fast in the early part in the first decade of the century and um and i could see that our accounting approach had problems that it it really didn't comply completely Little did I know at the time of how much it didn't comply, but it didn't really comply with the uh, government cost accounting standards. And um, and the chairman at the time said, "Well, you know, yes, I see what you're saying, Nick, but we pass this all the time. It's not an issue. Don't worry about it much." Well, in 2006, uh, uh, the government. Uh, raided Louis Berger's offices with 65 armed FBI and IG and other kinds of agents to seize uh, information. Coincidental that it, we happened to be moving from our long-term, long-time headquarters in East Orange, New Jersey, out to Morristown. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of confusion going on. But, and so that's when I knew we had a problem. So where were you the moment you knew? Uh, I was driving into the office and I could see all these guys running around in blue windbreakers with FBI on the back. Mm. I parked my car and I came up and to one guy and I said, I'm the CEO. I says, oh, we were looking for you. <laughs> I went up to my office and they started asking me questions and... Uh, I could see this is this is going to be a real issue. They had the chairman in his office. They were asking him questions. And I managed to get on the phone to um, 
Fred Berger, who was Dr. Berger's son, mm-hmm. who was in our Washington, D.C. office. And I told him what was happening. And I say, if you know any lawyers, I get a couple of lawyers over here. Hmm. And he called someone he knew from high school because uh, he went to school in West Orange. And um, uh, they uh, sent a couple of lawyer, a lawyer over. And uh, so we made sure there was a lawyer present when as many people as possible who were being interviewed, uh, you know, at least we knew what their questions they were being asked and things like that. And that was the beginning. And they, you know, served a, a subpoena on us for, uh, you know, all our records and stuff. And we had to work with them on that. To, you know, these things are written very broadly. They wanted every single piece of paper. And I asked the question to the U.S. Department of Justice attorney. So you say every piece of paper. I mean, <clears throat> most of what we do here are... Uh, design plans for transportation facilities. Do you want all the plans and the calculation sheets? And they looked at me like I didn't, they didn't understand what I was talking about. I said, well, you know, what, what do you want? So we narrowed it down to the kinds of things they wanted because <clears throat> they obviously didn't want to see the design of the bridge. Um, mm. So, um, and so we went through a long period of them doing their, uh, supplying their activities. And, you know, of course, we were doing our own um, investigation of what what's really going on here. And I figured that it had something to do with the accounting issues that I had been finding. And, um, and we had tried to tell AID that we thought we had some problems, but they really didn't respond when we had told them that first. Of course, now they are shocked to find out there were problems. Um, hmm. So it started a long process of we had to do an official internal investigation, the law firm we hired uh, to do that. And um, and that took uh, yeah, a couple of years to do. Um, and then we had to present that information to the government then we had to negotiate with the government. All that took um, to, I think, 2010, we um, we actually arrived at uh, a settlement agreement with the uh, government. But in the course of that, uh, we found out that what had inspired everything from the government side was a whistleblower lawsuit. And um, from a different part of the Department of Justice, and um, and that whistleblower lawsuit, which we couldn't get access to for some time, but eventually did, basically uh, targeted our chairman um, for things. Hmm. So the negotiations commence. Eventually, they determine there's a fine. Um, it was a very large yeah. fine. Yeah, it was a. I learned a lot of things. Is it really doesn't make any difference what the law says mm-hmm. when you pay a fine from the government? It's really how much money do you have and how much of that are they going to take? Mm-hmm. And they took a lot. They took about fifty million dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, we had calculated that based upon the system, probably about thirty-five was the right number, but it, it's not a very 
uh, even negotiation when you negotiate with the Department of Justice. They didn't ask your opinion. Not really. <laughs> oh, it's not funny. Um, so then yeah. what did you do? You can only laugh in, in retrospect. Yeah. Well, we eventually signed a settlement. We thought we were going to get a uh, what's called a non-prosecution agreement. Um, uh, but we wound up with uh, one step higher than that. You know, and we had to manage all our other clients at the same time. You know, we didn't want any of our other clients to feel that we, you know, uh, were a bunch of crooks or anything. So mm -hmm. uh, we paid our fine. Um, we paid it over a, a schedule of years. Um, and um, and we had to reform, of course, all our, all our systems, which we had already started doing, because mm -hmm. as we did the internal investigation, we got deeply into the issues that I had originally raised and uh, saw where we needed to change. Mm. But we also found at that same time in our internal investigation, there were four instances overseas where some of the transactions were, shall we say, suspicious. So we had a big soul-searching discussion internally. Do we report this as part of our internal investigation? Since it really has nothing to do with what's going on in the U.S. Because these could be potential violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Um, which was a law not much enforced in the United States until really the end of the 90s, early 2000s. Um, we eventually decided we should report it. And much to our surprise, they wouldn't include that in our overall settlement that we agreed to because it was a different part of the Justice Department that handled Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So we had to start all over again with new people in the Department of Justice in Washington, now in Washington, D.C., no longer the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Jersey. And we had it wound up having to do a whole nother internal investigation focused on foreign corrupt practice potential. How did that end up? It ended up fairly well. Uh, you know, we uh, of the four instances that started this whole thing, we only found, I, I think, two of them really had some issue, but we found a couple other issues. Um, and, and what made it complicated was the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act people referred everything that was happening to the World Bank's uh, integrity department and to uh, the European Union. So all of a sudden we've got other government agencies both, and um, transnational agencies that nobody controls. So how do we manage investigations? And we wound up with a simultaneous investigation from the World Bank, the European Union, we were advised to do nothing, and that turned out to be the right advice. And um, and the real the the, the uh, critical path through everything became the World Bank, and the reason was some of our largest U.S. clients 
gave great legitimacy to the World Bank. And if they sanctioned us in any way, we would have lost our domestic US work with those clients. Mm. And that would have been a, a very, very big blow. Could have put us out of business, business mm -hmm. actually. So the World Bank became the most difficult uh, part of the whole thing. And uh, <clears throat> I sought advice and I got advice from some outside people of how to deal with them. And we followed that and we came with a very successful um, uh, conclusion with the World Bank. We were, we were suspended for less than a year. Hmm. And less than a year is considered the lightest uh, sanction from the World Bank. And, um, and they very much liked what we had already changed in the systems. So uh, we actually uh, became a poster child for them of how to, how to reform. Mm -hmm. And that then eventually helped us get through the FCPA. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we paid another uh, 15 million or so, 17 million. Mm -hmm dollar fine and we were able to pay that and um we were done mm -hmm. so then you know they're taking these big chunks of cash from you whether it's all at once or over a period of time right. you need cash to operate what did you do well uh two things um We, had, we did have a couple of banks leave us because they didn't want to be associated with us during this whole thing. So we used our line of credit a little, not much, but a little. Um, but fortunately, we had won some other contracts that were highly lucrative. And remember, some of our other companies like the company in Canada with a 45% EBITDA are, are just throwing off cash left and right. And that cash paid for everything. Mm -hmm. Now, in effect, the total cost of everything, our equity would have been 50% higher than it was at, at the time everything ended. Mm -hmm. But nobody took a, a blow to their investments. I mean, if you had $10 worth of Berger stock on day one, you still had $10 worth of Berger stock on day 365, but it didn't grow as much as it could have mm -hmm. because we spent all this money on the, the lawyers. Mm -hmm. So between the other companies that we had throwing off cash and our a couple of very lucrative contracts we had, we were able to pay for everything. Where does Bob Abrams come in on? Ah, well, so so we've got, we've gone through this whole thing but at the same time partners are getting older mm. they want to retire some people just wanted to leave because they didn't like what had gone on mm -hmm. and you know the, the the even though we had maybe 24 or five partners at that time, the, the, the holdings were very concentrated in three people. Mm. The, the chairman, who was no longer the chairman by now, 
um, he was gone from the company. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Fred Berger, Dr. Berger's son, and um, uh, a French uh, engineer who, with uh, Darish, had been builders of the company in the earlier years. So they had about 75% of the company. So I had a plan. How can I get, um, how can I, you know, Darish, even though Darish was gone from the company and the government was accusing him of being a, a mastermind in a fraudulent scheme, contractually, we still owed him his money. Mm-hmm. We couldn't not, we had no basis not to pay him. Mm-hmm. They hadn't convicted him of anything by that time. So, you know, so we got to pay him. We got to pay the French guy who wanted, who was older and wanted to wind down. Um, we had to pay some other people. So uh, I came up with two solutions. Um, and we put the two together. Uh, one was bring in an outside uh, investment that would not dominate, you know, not purchase the entire firm and we would just be employees of that private equity operation, uh, but bring in an actual investor. And that was Abrams. Mm. Plus create an ESOP inside the con- company to, um, and between the ESOP and um, the um, Abrams, we basically absorbed 50% of all the shares and made the future ownership now have a path forward. To me, that's the greatest part of the story. You know, you you manage through extraordinarily diff- difficult times. You had many people's life savings on the line that were buying shares for their entire careers. And the stakes were so high. Yes. Very, very high. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I came up with this. I, um, someone I knew helped introduce, we didn't know it was going to be Abrams. Mm-hmm. We had a couple of, op- we used, we called them the, uh, the Boston investment and the New York investment. <laughs> One was from New York and one was from, uh, and Abrams was from Boston. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I explained all this to the shareholders. I explained the ESOP concept to them. And we went around and um, not only did I do a general discussion <clears throat> before all of the partners, shareholders, but I, I also went out to each operation and met with small groups of partners and shareholders. I brought Jim Stamatos with me mm-hmm. and um, and a couple of times I brought a couple other people with me and we went over everything, explained what the situation was and how this was preparing us for the future. Um, you know, that we would have to manage the private investment coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't really want to be a, we, we wanted to be owned by the people who did the work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, and then we got a committee together to interview the New York guys and the, and the Boston guys. And um, it's pretty clear to me that we were going to wind up going to Boston and everybody who on that little committee uh, agreed. And then we eventually struck a deal with uh, Dave Abrams. Mm -hmm. And he turned out to be a terrific partner. Mm -hmm. That's great. It's uh it's a happy ending to a great American company and a tribute to you. And I apologize for saying Bob Abrams. I meant Dave. <laughs> um, it's a great story. It's a good story. The problem for me personally is, you know, I, I spent the last few years of my life managing lawyers, not mm. engineers. Right. You know, engineers like to work together. Lawyers hate to work together. Right. I actually threatened to break their kneecaps when they didn't <laughs> cooperate. And um, mm. it was difficult. <laughs> so I, by 2015, I was totally worn out. Mm -hmm. And um, I told the board that it, I, I really need to step aside. I could remain on the board if that's what the shareholders wanted. Uh, but I, 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 I didn't have the energy to take us now that we now had a platform to grow again, I I couldn't oversee that platform. Understood. And uh, the board did its own internal review and search. I had recommended Jim for the job, and they agreed. And uh, the the partners all voted uh, for Jim Stamatis to take my position. That's great. And then I stepped back to just be on the board. Thank you for telling me that story. It's uh, I've heard it lots of times from lots of different people, but never with this level of detail. And, um, you know, I, and you and I've talked about it, but yeah. this was yeah. fascinating for me. Is there anything that uh, you might like to say or ask me as we get to the end of our conversation before we wrap up? Well, I don't know, you know, um, I think I, I stayed true to, what I saw my responsibilities as is, which, which was to deliver quality work to our clients and protect the investments of my partners. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, everybody probably has an opinion whether I did that well or not, but I, I think I did okay. Yeah, I do too. And I think that's the popular sentiment among the people we know in common. I mean, nobody's perfect, but it was a Herculean effort and... And you it was, you know, one of the biggest decisions I made way in the beginning was that I had to handle all this personally mm -hmm. and not and and limit the amount of work I needed from other people mm -hmm. in the company, because this kind of thing absorbs mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. We had to continue our work for our clients, mm -hmm. bring in cash, win new work. Mm -hmm. And so if I got everybody involved. Mm -hmm. It would have destroyed us. Yeah, you so had, myself. You had to Larry, protect your people, really. Exactly, Larry Walker, Jim Bach, mm -hmm. uh, Jim Stamatis a little. We we mm -hmm. we we really had to keep it confined. Mm -hmm. But the flip side of that is, like I said, I wore myself out. Right, it's a heavy burden. Well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon. This has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Sure. Anytime. Loved it. Thank you. All righty. Thanks. Bye. Take care.
If you enjoy the most fascinating podcast in the world, please follow on Spotify, subscribe on YouTube, and follow on Apple Podcasts.